listening to the Nupi podcast, and this is a recording of the seminar Is America Turning Its Back on Europe? that was recorded on the 11th of November 2021. The participants are Rachel Elhus, Francois Esbour, and Rolf Tamnes. The moderator is head of Nupi's research group on security and defense, Kasten Face. Okay, uh, welcome to this uh, seminar at NUPI. Uh, my name is Uv Sverup, I'm the director of NUPI. It's a great pleasure to welcome you here all today. To those of you who have found, or found your way to our premises, and of course also those who, you, who follow us uh, digitally. Um, recent events uh, such as the evacuation from Afghanistan, and the AUKUS, and the secret negotiations over Australia's new submarines, at the expense of French industry and French uh, policy, I would say, have frustrated uh, many Europeans and showed somehow that the US, at least occasionally, is still pursuing an America first policy. Uh, the tabloid version was that Biden would change this policy of Trump and also that maybe that has not happened. Uh, more important than this rather provocative title that we have put on this seminar, Is America Turning Its Back on Europe? Is, is this your, perhaps we should reflect a bit on the changing nature of US policy towards Europe. As I see it, there are at least two very important drivers that we in Europe have to think about. The first is related to US domestic politics and policy. It's a deeply polarized country. And uh, the new Biden administration is putting a lot of emphasis on pursuing a policy that meets the interest of the U.S. middle class. And this, I think, has a huge implication for uh, U.S. foreign policy and also how Europe should relate to it. The second change uh, in the U.S. policy, of course, the changing of priorities and attention, uh, where everything is moving towards China, and that's the number one priority, not only in security and defense, but also in research policy, in competition policy, and almost all aspects of the policy. And as a consequence of this policy of strategic rivalry with China, the U.S. is redirecting its attention and capacities, slightly also away from Europe then. So at this seminar, we will ask whether the U.S. is turning its back on Europe, or rather how it is changing its policy towards Europe. We'll also reflect, I think, on how Europe should respond and react to this, uh, partly by how, how to make the transatlantic relationship relevant uh, and important as we go along based on these two initial preconditions on the changing domestic policy and priority in the US and also the changing priorities in its foreign policy. And also oh, how to see how Europeans will make themselves ready to cope with some of the tasks if there will be a division of labor of some sort between the U.S. and Europe. Now, uh, to discuss these issues, we have an excellent panel. Uh, and it's just fantastic to have Rachel Elihus uh, from uh, CSIS in the U.S., uh, leading scholar and thinking, uh, thinker on, uh, on U.S. policy towards Europe. Uh, in addition to that, we have Francois 
Asbur from uh, WISS, uh, currently uh, a legend in uh, French uh, strategic thinking. And then we have uh, also with us uh, Rolf Tamnes, uh, professor in history, used to be at the Institute for Defense Studies, but is now here a colleague at, uh, at NUPI. And uh, as the moderator, we will have uh, Karsten Fries, uh, who's leading or heading our security and defense group. So this seminar then is organized in the following way. First, uh, uh, each of the speakers will have uh, 15 minutes from the podium to address some of the issues. Uh, and then uh, that will be in turn, the three of them. And then uh, afterwards, they will be seated up here for a uh, conversation. Uh, and that will be moderated by Caution. So uh, on that note, I just uh, thank you to all of you for, uh, for joining in on uh, what I think is a really important uh, seminar and a really important discussion. So uh, please, Rachel, great to have you here uh, at NUPI. And uh, the floor is yours. Well, good morning, everyone. Oh, that's quite loud. Um, thanks for making the time in person and online, and it's nice to see some familiar faces in the crowd and, and to be here in, in Oslo. This is my first international trip since February 2020 when I went to the Munich Security Conference, which in retrospect was, was probably not a great idea, but uh, <laughs> we survived, and I know many of you were there as well. So it's, it's great to be here again. Um, there's so much value in having sort of three national perspectives on one issue. I think that's what we've really missed during the pandemic is, is you know, looking at all these things that have happened, Afghanistan, AUKUS, um, you know, the election and, and really comparing notes. So I'm really happy to be here. Um, you know, these questions are quite daunting because there's really, you know, I'm, I'm, is America turning its back on Europe? I mean, that's quite, quite a sort of, you know, headline catcher. So I'll, I'll do my best to sort of explain a little bit about what's going on. And Ulf did a good job about, um, you know, getting us into that. So, you know, I think sort of bottom line up front is, I think the answer is no, America's not turning its back on Europe. Um, but as you said, there is a changing nature of this relationship. Um, in the first instance, there are, there's the fact that the U.S. has more competing interests and priorities. And you already alluded to the domestic agenda and the renewed attention to the Indo-Pacific. I think a lot of people forget, particularly even Americans who live on the East Coast, that the US is a Pacific power. And you feel that when you go to California and Seattle and even Texas. Um, so it's not unnatural, but it does, that combination of the pull of domestic interests and the, and the renewed focus on the Indo-Pacific is taking more resources and attention in terms of US foreign and security policy. Another thing that, that's sort of appearing now is constrained resources. I was just looking at the Pentagon's defense budget for 2020, and yes, it looks enormous, but it is flat in real terms. So there's no increase um, in the defense budget, and in fact, you know, the flexibility within that budget to make hard choices and to reorient towards either a domestic agenda or the Indo-Pacific, that maneuver room is very small. So there are really tough choices between improving readiness um, and, and meeting our commitments in Europe and modernizing the force. I'll talk about that later. 
And then at the same time, I think we've seen an evolution in Europe's own abilities, the capabilities that Europe and the EU in particular have to bring to bear on transnational challenges, for example, are much more relevant. And so I think what we're looking at is a need to recalibrate this transatlantic relationship and make space for more European defense and this, this better balance in the relationship as the US does refocus and Europe steps up. And I think the, the recent meeting between President Biden and, and Macron wa was really illustrative of how the, this relationship could recalibrate. Um, just quickly to go through those areas, you know, Biden promised um, they agreed to continued U.S. support for French operations in the Sahel. So this idea that, you know, France has something that's a priority for France and for Europe and the U.S. can sort of it's a negative term, but lead from behind, but be supportive of our European allies as they take the lead on a challenge that affects us all, but affects them a bit more. The second aspect, um, I was a little surprised that you know the US offered to support European allies who wanted to be part of a presence in the Indo-Pacific. They don't spell out the details, but the idea um, is clear that the US wants Europeans to be engaged in the Indo-Pacific as well. Um, you know, really strong words on support for a stronger European defense capability, and in particular, a transatlantic defense industry. I think that's really important. Um, sometimes the rhetoric on both sides of the Atlantic can point to a bifurcation in the transatlantic defense industry. Um, and those who watch this closely know that that industry is already very transatlantic. Supply chains are already very transatlantic. So that suggestion is, is not going to play out in reality. So this idea of a US-French dialogue on defense industrial issues, export controls and whatnot, I think is another area that shows how we might be recalibrating this relationship. Um, you know, is this a continuation of America First? This is sort of a favorite question of, of journalists in the US. And I think, no. Um, you know, if I, I, I was in the Department of Defense for the first two years of the Trump administration as a civil servant. So I, and I started there under the last years of Rumsfeld. So I've been through a couple of iterations of <laughs> Democratic and Republican administrations. And I will say it was striking under, under the Trump administration, the degree of unilateralism. Unilateralism and little consultation with allies to the degree that it sometimes undermined US national security interests. So I think we've really moved far away from that. Um, there are instances where it does look like the U.S. is pursuing its national interests, sometimes at odds with or at the expense of allies and partners. But, you know, that's because it's in the U.S. national interest. And I would argue strongly that most countries, in fact, preference their national interests. Recent examples would be Germany and Nord Stream 2. That's against the EU Third Energy Directive and plans to diversify energy sources in Europe. It upset a subset of EU and NATO allies and partners. Um, France's withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, you know, that was at a time when we really could have used their assistance there, but they needed those forces for other reasons. Um, so I don't think the, the US is alone in pursuing national interests. Um, sometimes at the expense of allies. The key is, do you consult with their, your allies beforehand? Do you take on board their concerns and do you adjust your policy accordingly? I think the Biden administration's attempt at doing this is very much there. They've consulted closely with allies on all of our big strategic reviews, like the nuclear posture review, the national defense strategy, the global posture review, which will all be coming out, I think, in the next several months. Um, 
I do think people are still waiting, and this is fair enough, to see whether that listening and consultation translates into changes in policies. And Afghanistan certainly met a lot of criticism um, due to the fact that allies felt they were certainly listened to in NATO fora and, and bilaterally, but that ultimately that didn't change the U.S. decision. So there are a couple of things coming down the pipeline that I'll be watching to see if what I know has been a high level of European engagement actually changes where the U.S. policy comes out. So nuclear posture review is one of those. The degree to which Russia figures in our national defense strategy would be another. Um, and for me, that'll be a litmus test about whether we're truly moving into, away from just consultation, into actually adjusting our strategy. One word and sort of trend I've picked up in the way the Biden administration operates, and I'll share it with you just because it w I had to actually look it up. Um, everybody talks about how the Biden administration's moved away from the unilateralism of the Trump years and toward multilateralism. I actually think, uh, I heard it in, in, in connection with the Trade and Technology Council, that the Biden administration is taking a plurilateral approach. And I said I had to look it up because I didn't quite grasp what it meant. But basically what it means is sort of a coalition of the like-minded. That let's say you're in the United Nations or you're in NATO and you have something you want to achieve. Well, that's really cumbersome because, you know, in NATO you've got 30 allies and you have to agree and it's hard to build consensus. So, you know, the middle ground between unilateralism and multilateralism is to work with a subset of allies for whom that particular issue is first and foremost. So that might be working with the P3 on, on nuclear issues and building a consensus, working with, you know, the UK, France, and Germany on Russia, and then moving that into um, a bigger forum. So the idea being that at the very outset, we don't need to start at 30 and water down the strength of that decision or that policy just for the sake of multilateralism. So I think that's pretty unique, this idea of a plurilateral approach and building consensus. And for, you know, smaller allies like Norway, I think that means you have to be better at articulating your core interests, working with your immediate neighbors to make sure that, you know, you're being heard in these plurilateral fora because the, the you know, the temptation will be to go to the usual suspects, UK, France, Germany, um, rather than, than to, to, you know, include all allies. But from what I understand about the degree of engagement with, with Nordic allies and partners, both from the Pentagon and state, they certainly understand the value um, of, of this region and, and of your voice. Um, maybe a word about, um, you know, some of the tensions in the transatlantic relationship, which I know we've alluded to, because I do think that when I have seen tensions in the transatlantic relationships or policies that do tend to suggest the U.S. has moved more in the direction of national interests rather than collective interest, it's usually due to one of two things. One is, as you said, the domestic agenda. So things like Build Back Better and the foreign policy for the middle class. A recent example there would be the Section 232 steel and aluminum tariffs, which were, of course, imposed under the Trump administration, but carried, carried on for a long time under the current administration. And a lot of people were scratching their heads. Why was that not, you know, an easy win or low-hanging fruit that could have been resolved pretty quickly? 
Well, that's because at some level, you know, particularly on the steel side, there's a domestic contingent that has benefited, at least superficially or, or in terms of perception from that legislation. So Biden had to move carefully, and I think in the end result, we see not a blanket acceptance of European steel and aluminum, but certain quotas that sort of meet you halfway. So I think it's important to note that, you know, sometimes we won't get everything we want, but but that willingness to sort of negotiate and meet halfway um, is important. But that's an example of where a domestic interest kind of came up against what appeared to be a clear area of transatlantic cooperation. The second one um, that creates a lot of tension is tension in the U.S. bureaucracy itself, particularly with Congress. Um, Congress is very... You know, they don't agree on a lot, but there are a handful of issues where there's bipartisan consensus. One of those is Turkey um, and the idea that they should be sanctioned and they're a problematic ally. Another is China. And so the Biden administration's hands are, are somewhat tied um, in a lot of negotiations because they have to be seen to be rather tough on China. Um, and they're answering to Congress pretty regularly on, on what they're doing. Um, Less so on Russia, but I think that, consists, uh, that, that consensus exists as well. You certainly saw that on Nord Stream 2 and, and the fact that that's still holding up some of President Biden's key nominations to national security posts. Um, so again, Congress is another thing that, that can constrain him. And, and, and within that bureaucratic tension, I'd add that there are, you know, we, you have multi, you have a parliamentary system. So you've got a lot of smaller parties that are working to find consensus through minority governments all the time. We have these two monoliths, but within these two monoliths, there are a lot of fringes and, and sort of subgroups. And so I think prog the progressive wing of the Democratic Party in particular is constraining Biden a little bit and pushing for some policies that, you know, certainly... Um, would raise questions in the transatlantic relationship. Again, sort of nuclear posture being one of those. Just the overall level of defense spending, I think, is, is a question they would like to see um, some of the defense budget go to other, other um, you know, tools and means of, of executing our foreign policy. To your final question, to the final question, I think I've got about two, three minutes left. Um, is the U.S. focus on Asia coming at the expense of Europe? Because I think this is something we actually do have to focus on and stay engaged in to make sure that that doesn't become a reality. Um, there's sort of three areas that I'd highlight. The first would be posture. And I mentioned that there's a global posture review that's coming out shortly. Um, I think we've already seen in Europe over the past five to eight years a move towards less permanent U.S. presence in Europe towards a rotational model. So we see forces, you know, I guess in the case of Norway, we have the mari marine rotational forces coming um, through to exercise with you, the UK, the Dutch, um, and whatnot in, in the north, north of Norway. Um, and, and so I think that rotational presence, we also see it in the Baltics and the Black Sea, is the way of the future, um, rather than, you know, families um, coming over to Germany and living there uh, on a permanent basis for years. Um, we also see this trend towards sort of dynamic force employment where the forces the U.S. has, they don't belong in Europe, they don't belong in the Middle East, and they don't belong in Asia. They sort of are made, um, they are leveraged as they move through all of those areas to meet the deterrence needs in all three theaters. So it's, it's not a zero-sum game in terms of posture, but it does mean that 
there will be less ownership in Europe of those forces. So we have to think about how European allies and partners can supplement and build on that rotational presence, recognizing that the U.S. may not be here all the time, um, physically, heel to toe, to the level that it had been in the past. So I think we have to keep an eye on, on posture and think about how Europe's capabilities can, can supplement that. And France's participation in the enhanced forward presence, for example, is, is a great example of, of that. Um, I think we need to keep the Brits on task a little bit to make sure that they're still paying attention to, to Europe and the European theater as they modernize and, and try to be engaged in, in the Indo-Pacific. The second is capabilities. Um, as I mentioned, the defense budget is flat in real terms, but the focus is clearly on modernization, particularly naval and air, and part of that is to posture for the China fight. And so I think we need to be mindful of interoperability issues as the U.S. moves pretty quickly on that path towards modernization. And then the final one, and I'll close here, which I mentioned before, is the defense industrial base. Um, you know, we've, you've heard a lot of talk about, you know, China, the U.S. and Europe cooperating on resilience, on harmonizing the rules around emerging technology, um, keeping an eye on Russia-China cooperation. I think the only way this, this, this sort of united front to, to counter those more negative practices um, by China happens as if the U.S. and the EU or the U.S. and Europe are, are really presenting this united front, particularly in terms of defense industrial base, including a lot of dual-use capabilities. So those are kind of the three areas that I would focus on to make sure that we're not getting a yes answer to this question of if the U.S. focus on Asia is coming at the expense of Europe. Um, and with that, I think it's Francois' turn to tell me everything I've said is is incorrect and he has a different view. <laughs> Thanks. No, the, what you said is not incorrect, <laughs> to, to put it in the shortest possible way. Uh, but the uh, angles of approach uh, can differ. My, my, my angle is going to be uh, more uh, embedded in time uh, and uh, uh, as well as in space. Uh, there is great continuity in American policy over the last uh, 12, 13 years. And, you know, if you forget that you had a president in the States called Bush Jr., president called Obama, president called Trump, president called Biden, uh, if, you didn't know the, if you didn't know this, you know, and you came from Mars, what would you notice? You would notice that in 2008, a war took place in Georgia. Uh, there had been a lot of brave talk about uh, having Georgia join NATO, etc. But when the balloon went up, Georgia, actually to his credit, one of the very few Americans who decided not to continue to be on vacation in August, was Joe Biden, to his credit. But it was a very, it, he was the exception who confirmed what was going to become a rule. So the Americans actually on Georgia decided to play it prudent, to play it low profile. That may have been very wise, but it is a fact. Then in 2011, and the uh, Central Europeans could actually say uh, 2009, the anniversary of the Soviet entry into Poland, which was chosen as uh, uh, as the date uh, for uh, some American 
uh, announcements concerning uh, a possible agreements, which didn't happen with, the, with Russia on air defense and ABM. But 2011, uh, you mentioned leading from behind. Well, leading from behind was not a stated policy. It was something which came from uh, some bright staffer at the White House who, who thought that this was a clever way to explain what Obama was, was doing at the time of the Libya campaign. Uh, but the signal was heard loud and clear, at least in our part of Europe. Uh, but still, this was something for the nerds. Then we had 2013, the red line crisis. Uh, that was big. Uh, the United States created a strategic vacuum. And as we all know, and it's true for strategy as in other areas, nature abhors a vacuum. And Russia filled the vacuum quite effectively, it must be said. Uh, and in the following year, stuff happened. 2014, uh, Crimea, uh, the militarization of the islands in the South China Sea. I don't know whether there is a relationship with the Red Line crisis. The archives will remain closed for still a number of years, I guess. But, uh, you know, as they would have said in the Soviet Union, dear comrades, it's not by chance that these things may have happened at the time when they happened. And then, of course, yes, Ukraine. Uh, NATO gave a coordinated, coherent, and I would argue quite appropriate response. Uh, but, you know, this stuff happened in... February, March, April, beginning of the war in the Donbass, and so on. And in June, Obama hands over the political responsibility for the handling of the Ukraine crisis to the Europeans. Europeans didn't complain, but it was quite interesting. The Normandy format didn't work too well. Uh, but this is a different world in which we have entered. And now, you know, in the Mediterranean, which is a quite important body of water, you only have a few hundred million people who live on both banks of the, of the sea, the U.S. is no longer a lead power. The power which could adjudicate between the competing claims, notably, of Greece and Turkey, like in 1974, when the Greeks and the Turks started shooting at each other in Cyprus, the Americans came and said, stop it. No more spare parts for the Turkish Air Force. Story was over within 24 hours. Talk about integrated value chains. Uh, <coughs> uh, <laughs> that's not the way the European defense, the American defense industry is necessarily seen on the other side of the water. But in this case, it was for a good cause. Uh, the United States is no longer able or willing, I don't, know, I don't know which word is the most important one here, to do that. So what happens? What is the outcome of all the dimension? And where, where did it come from? It, it came from, of course, from the experience of failure in Iraq. You know, I don't think Georgia had anything to do with China. But the notion that you keep out of trouble, yes, that came from Iraq. Uh, and then, of course, we did get the rise of China, which was obvious 
At the time of the great financial crisis, 2008-2009, America had found a new peer competitor. Uh, so what has that produced? It has produced, of course, a change of priorities. It's perfectly normal. The United States is rational. There's no, uh, in all of that I've described, there's, there, uh, there's, there's nothing which I would personally uh, object to on the grounds of strategic rationality. Priorities changed. Priority is, in, is China as an actor, an Indo-Pak as a space. That has changed. And it is necessarily, if resources are not unlimited, and we've just been told that they are limited, that means Europe, Europe is not as important and will not benefit from the same level of attention as had been the case previously. It's a fact of life. That's one outcome. The other outcome is that the United States, and this strangely enough was, uh, has, was true under Trump and not simply under Biden, America started playing smart. That is like a power which is challenged, which, no, which understands that it no longer has unlimited resources and therefore tries to find ways to get other people to do some of the stuff that it had been doing previously. Uh, would Trump like to have done a war with Iran? I think the answer is yes. There certainly were lots of statements which tend to indicate that he would have loved it. He had two big opportunities to do so, where American interests, American partners, American assets had been hit by the Iranians. He decided not to do it. What did he do? Well, he, he helped create a I don't know, you know, some people say plurilateralism, some people talk about mini-lats. Uh, well, he created the Abraham Accords, getting the Sunnis and the Israelis to work together to cope with the Iranian beast without having to confront Iran directly. Is this smart? Yes, it is. Is this the sign of a rising power? No, it's the way a smart declining power operates. In Indo-Pak, the Quad, creation of the Quad, goes back a number of years. It's not particularly recent, actually. Uh, was it smart? Yes, it is. Try to get uh, India to be part of the picture and so on. Good, smart idea. And this continues nowadays. And of course, if you are no longer in a leadership position, you have to expect others to play a greater role. Some of those others I've described, but this is also true in Europe. Why did France conclude a mutual defense, a guarantee backed with Greece a few weeks ago? Because NATO simply cannot deal with the problem of Turkey. NATO cannot adjudicate disputes between its members. The United States as a member of NATO could adjudicate issues between other NATO member states, but as I said, this is over, at least in the Mediterranean, and I would argue more broadly in Europe. Uh, and so, once again, this is not necessarily bad, but it's definitely different, and it does mean that uh, the Europeans in particular are challenged to do things which they didn't need to do until now, either because the Americans pressed them to do them or because, for lack of Americans, we have to do them anyway. 
And this is what has happened last year when the Turks came out in force vis-à-vis -vis the Greeks. Who showed up? Who showed up? The French. Well, it worked, and it led to the current agreement. This is a very, very different world. Uh, so where does, from this situation, which is not linked to a specific administration, where do we go? What happens next? Well, first of all, for the Europeans, we have a problem in space and we have a problem in time. In space, we have to deal with an immediate threat, the one next door, from Russia. Russia is a world power. It is not a superpower. It also, unfortunately, happens to be our neighbor. And so we have to give it de facto priority. In a way which is no longer the case to the same extent for the United States of America. The nuclear aspects continue to be important for the US, parity and so on. But otherwise, you know, honestly, Russia is pretty small beer compared to China if you are in Washington, but not if you are in Oslo or in other capitals of Europe. Uh, so we have to deal, and we of course have our Chinese friends, quote unquote, whom we have to deal with. And in time, of course, what we should not forget is that although there is great continuity between these various American presidents, each one has his own style and each has his own proquinquities. Apparently, but of course the Norwegians know more about this, I think, than anybody else, apparently President Trump seriously considered withdrawing from NATO. So we read that uh, Jens Stoltenberg played a key role in dissuading him from doing that. Now that is not continuity. That is rupture, as the French would put it. Rupture stratégique, to use one of our expressions. Uh, who will run the United States in two years' time? Will anybody run the United States after the midterm elections next year? And when I mean anybody, I mean anybody. Will anybody run it? A man who appears to be five years older than his already a, a considerable age? Kamala Harris? And the prospect of Trump too in 2024? If you're European, you're going to hedge. You're going to hedge big time. And hedging means two things. First, it actually means spending more money. And this is where the American and the European interest converge. The Americans want us to spend more money. Yeah, it's a very good idea. Uh, we have to spend more money because we simply don't know what the Americans are going to do next or not do next. Strategic autonomy costs money. And secondly, you actually do need to act on the assumption that the Americans are not always going to be there when we need them and where we need them. This was said very clearly a few minutes ago. I agree with that. That helps explain why President Biden has been, uh, I think, very receptive in his dialogue with uh, Macron over the last few weeks. This is the silver lining of AUKUS, if I can put it that way. It actually has forced the Americans and the, and the French 
to think very hard about where we go, where we go next. Uh, so what do we do? There are two basic tracks. One is the track of hard choices, and the other is the track of really hard choices. Track of hard choices, which is the one which I prefer, is having to find a new balance between three items, uh, which are very diff which play out very differently than they did in the time of the Cold War, because China is a different challenge from the challenge of the Soviet Union. Uh, a is of course the new terms of burden sharing, just mentioned that the money in particular, but also picking up where the Americans are found wanting, like in the Mediterranean. Uh, secondly, we have to find new uh, role sharing. You mentioned the EU-US Council. This is Im Im immensely important. The battlefield of technology, investment, trade is a key battlefield of the confrontation between the West and China. And agreeing on that as we did in Pittsburgh on the 29th of September, six days after AUKUS was revealed, and after a period of a few days in which there was a very great temptation to scrap the meeting. It was the first meeting of its kind. That nearly happened, too. That's actually worth a lot more than eight submarines for Australia. That's a much bigger, that's a much bigger piece of the action. So that kind of decision to play together between the EU and other European countries on the one hand and the US on the other, vis-a-vis -vis China, in these key battlefields, that is something which here again may be one of the silver linings of AUKUS. And of course, risk sharing. Risk sharing means being present in Indo-Pacific. The French have been in the Indo-Pacific for a long time. We have under slightly under two million citizens who live and who vote there. Uh, it's a real stake, independently of the grand strategic stuff. Uh, and moving away from our official, freshly minted Indo-Pacific strategy, which we devised in 2018, was actually not an option. Or if it was, it was immediately rejected. So how do we balance between risk sharing, role sharing, burden sharing? That is going to be the discussion between the serious Europeans and the serious Americans, hoping that both, both categories will be present when needed. The really hard choice, and this is a scary one, is what I would call the Mearsheimer-Kupshan uh, approach. That is, uh, America finds itself in the unfortunate situation of having to deal with a superpower, a peer competitor, China on the one hand, and still having a hostile Russia, which itself is partnered with China. The temptation to, pray, to play ultra-realpolitik and to cut a dirty deal with Russia is one which you see in the analytical community. I've only cited two, but there are a number of distinguished pieces which have come out in foreign affairs and elsewhere over the last few months about the yeah, let's do a deal with these guys in Moscow. Now, if you do a deal with the guys in Moscow, 
who do you think will be the object of the transaction? Not going to be the guys in Mars. It's going to be the guys in Europe. And that is also one which we have to be very, very attentive to. Uh, I've spoken more than long enough, and I hope I've uh, dropped in enough provocations in order to uh, make for a lively debate in a few minutes' time. And now, over to you. And by the way, it's great to be in Norway. It's great <laughs> to travel. It's great to see you guys. Well, thank you, uh, Rachel and Francois, for your insights. I tend to agree with most of it, if not all, but I shall try to elaborate on some of your points. But let me start with the notion of crisis, because many journalists and strategists have made it a livelihood of alarming us about uh, deep crises, even big shifts, caused often by sudden events, all the time, actually. And yes, from time to time, there is a profound change, of course, but most often uh, the alarm is false. The, I would argue that the fabric of international relations is more robust than, uh, than often believed. And when it comes to other parts of the world, NATO and the transatlantic cooperation is not in deep crisis. By no means because of the pullout from Afghanistan and the ACUS agreement. As the Danish Prime Minister said in September, we do not necessarily agree with the Americans on everything, but we have absolutely no frustration with the new administration. And as you know, the chemistry between the Biden administration and Europe as of today is exceptionally good. There is a high degree of consensus about key issues, and I don't actually expect any insurmountable rifts on the road to the Madrid summit uh, next, uh, next summer, even more so since much fell into place at the uh, summit in Brussels uh, last June. I've also been surprised um, to see how much NATO has achieved since uh, 2014 in rebuilding collective uh, defense, and that was not obvious that they could do so taking into consideration the variety of countries and interests in the alliance. As you know, that includes uh, defense plans, the original graduated response plans, and now the comprehensive uh, concept for deterrence and defense, the DDA concept, which binds the regional uh, plans together. And latest, uh, now in, in, in last month, the secure strategic plan, which uh, provides, so to say, uh, a strategic direction nested under, under DDA. And um, one should also mention that NATO has come a long way in rebuilding a more robust command structure to deal with high core issues. Since we are in Oslo, one should of course uh, mention in particular NATO's Joint Force Command in Norfolk, which became fully operative in July, interconnected with the Second Fleet immensely important uh, for securing the sea lanes and for assistance uh, to Europe and to Norway indeed. It's the, 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 the anchor as the, in the future when it comes to Norwegian security. 
I would also mention uh, the steady, closer cooperation with Finland and Sweden. We shall not go into that here now, but I think they are about to become a kind of functional allies to, to the alliance and, and to Norway. That's important in itself. So much is moving in the di right direction. But there are dockets, uh, dark, uh, darker sides, and you touched upon some of them. Let me briefly try to summarize and mention three challenges. And, and the first one is related to European defense and the transatlantic cooperation. As we know, Europe doesn't shape uh, history anymore. The uh, geopolitical strong points are elsewhere. And Europe's position, as we all know, has been weakened further because of the many crises. It has failed, um, let's say, in the past 15 years. The growing nationalism, populism, political instability, and I may also add all the odd men out on top of politics in Europe. That being said, one tends, I think, to underestimate Europe and European pragmatism. Crises are dealt with, although it makes uh, take some time and many compromises, but the European Union and coalition of countries in Europe are able to handle crisis uh, over time. And some achievements are impressive. Let me just mention the EU Green Deal, which is qu quite um, impressive how Europe and the European Union here has set a path for the future and it will have global implications. I would also emphasize that the Union and Germany, of course, in particular, are immensely important in bringing security to Europe in the broadest sense, far beyond defense and things like that, the glue providing security and stability. And I'm quite sure that the uh, strategic compass, which will be released in March, I think, uh, we will see a progress in a number of fields making the Union far more fit for operating more independently in higher-end conflicts as well. And if I should mention one aspect of it, it should be uh, uh, developing more robust uh, combat forces, especially uh, the battle groups, which have now been uh, deployed. There might be a possibility for, for making that somewhat more realistic in the future, I suppose. But the baseline here is that a stronger Europe, European defense, will be highly welcomed in most countries as long as it is uh, compatible with transatlantic cooperation. And it is compatible. The uh, Union will not basically infringe on NATO's key functions. Most countries in Europe are not ready to pay what it will cost to do so. And many countries, as you know, are dead against steps that might undermine NATO. Some overlap, yes, but that's normal. That's not a big deal. That's how it is in international relations. This may, of course, change in the future should the American guarantee become weaker, but that's another matter. I shall return to that. So what is then the problem? It is the destructive ambiguity in words, not in deeds. And that brings us to strategic autonomy, 
which you didn't talk about. Uh, uh, I had expected you to do so, but you have plenty of opportunities afterwards to, to dig I into that. It, yes, but to dig into what it is and what it's not and things like that. But be that. It is, of course, spearheaded by France, but it is widely popular in, in Europe. And the setting here is that while all countries tend to underscore the U.S. guarantee as being essential, strategic autonomy is also a mantra for anti-Americanism and for questioning the credibility of the U.S. guarantee. And that contributes to weakening the transatlantic cooperation. That being said, I think we should not worry too much because the European Union will not in reality trespass to NATO terrain and because in the final analysis I think the two organizations will sort out disagreements in a rather smooth way. I think that will be made clear in the joint partnership uh, declaration before the end of this year, hopefully which will include uh, important paragraphs on issues like military mobility, maritime security, plus, plus, plus. And then, of course, uh, related to the Union's strategic compass in March and NATO's strategic concept in, in June. Include, uh, in conclusion, I would uh, indicate that much ado about not so much. A second challenge would then be how to deal with China the big issue, of course, in geopolitics. And as we all know, many Europeans find US policy too confrontational, and a great number of Europeans are worried it would harm their economic interests. Should we be worried? Will it do much harm to the transatlantic cooperation? Not at this stage. Because as we know, politicians and citizens around the world have become deeply concerned about China's repressive tactics at home and aggression abroad. And I sense that the difficult corporations uh, over China have led to more understanding across the Atlantic. But this might change in the future. And that brings me to the third cha challenge, which you both uh, talked about. Where does the US go from here? Should Europe prepare for the big shift with no U.S. guarantee or light footprints only? I think so. Because of deep structural changes in world politics and in the U.S. society. One is, of course, tempted to say that Europe has time to adjust to these fundamental uh, changes. But there is an elephant in the room. Many of you have read Robert Kagan. The United States is heading into its greatest political and constitutional crisis since the Cold War, since the, the Civil War. The stage is being set for chaos, he writes, and for a new administration in 2024, Trump too. Man, well, um, one might uh, take comfort uh, in his age. He will be 82 plus in 28, to put it that way. Can we exclude uh, the possibility, despite that, of a peaceful coup d'etat leading to an illiberal and anti-democratic dynasty, taking into consideration what it did uh, in its first period? It's, of course, a worst and dramatic worst-case scenario, not very likely. 
but most of us would tend to believe that uh, Trump or another populist is likely, and in any case that America will change in the long haul. So that raises the question, what are the options for NATO and Europe? Well, one could, as an illustration, envision three paths or directions here. First then, in the short term, I think we will see more U.S. investments in Europe in some fields. And also, in the next years, we will probably see U.S. forces coming to Europe with new technologies and concepts designed for operations in Asia in particular. So the Americans, or, or first of all, the, um, the Europeans will have to rethink the way how they organize and operate to maintain interoperability. It sounds rather uncomplicated, but it's a huge challenge. And the second path is, of course, that the US will expect more equitable burden sharing in NATO and more robust European involvement in confronting China. The Congress will expect much, and should Trump return, Europe will be left in no doubt about that. We know that for sure, basically. And then the third part, or the path, is, as I indicated, that Europe will have to prepare for the big shift eventually. It may start in 24, or it may come much later. That brings us to the question if, if NATO should be left alone, if the United States will leave NATO. Well, as um, was touched upon by you, we all remember the dramatic summit in 2018. Let us, for the sake of simplicity, leave aside the Congress, which of course has a strong voice in questions like this. Uh, this. But as a starting point, I, I think that we should assume that the U.S. will not disengage. It will not turn its back on Europe. The question is how the U.S. will safeguard its interest in Europe and how it will institutionalize this engagement. Let me indicate as an illustration three approaches to this, uh, the, the, this issue. The first one, would the U.S. go for a French option anno 1966, that is leaving the military structure? Would the U.S. base its presence on its parallel national structure, notably the European Command uh, in, in Stuttgart and, and, and the Second Fleet in Norfolk? I sense that some countries in Europe might consider this structure far more interesting than a weakened NATO should it survive. The third question is then, would the U.S. build a web of bilateral ties nested together and sign agreements with countries like Poland, Norway, and Iceland? I think uh, the United States will be anxious to cooperate closely with a country such as Norway in order to watch and target Russian strategic capabilities and movements in and from the north. But this could, at least in theory, be done without entering into a fully-fledged defense treaty. Just to give some illustrations of scenarios ahead, speculations, playing with ideas and options, 
is one of the few privileges we have as scholars. So based on this, the next episode on the rise and fall could then be how Europe and Norway should deal with these uh, scenarios. To recalibrate, as Rachel said, to hedge, as Francois said. So stay tuned. Thank you very much. Right, okay, good. Well, this was three really, really good uh, uh, introductions, interventions. Um, you addressed a lot of topics, but they also overlapped, so I think we can be able to have a somewhat structured uh, discussion now. Um, so let's start with the overarching question. Is will, uh, will US turn its back on Europe? I guess you all agree uh, the, the answer is no. However, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> there's change. The change started early on, um, or it has been, you know, more dramatic later, or we can discuss that, but there is a change, right? Um, so there's a, continu con the continu it's a continuation of this engagement or less interest, if you want to follow you, Francois, or there's a, there's a, there's a, uh, if I find the right word, uh, Rachel, that you use, it's a changing nature of relationship that you said, uh, Rachel. So let's start with you, you Rachel. Um, you heard the others here. Um, I will kind of let you, if you want to comment on, on some of the, what the others said, but let still let me let me start with a, with this. You, know, you said that it's not uh, not going to be America first continuation. Um, there is there is uh, you know there's national interests, but it's not America first. Now these are gradual things. This is not you know either or. So the question is if the, the key question here is if the national interest of the U.S is increasingly diverging from the Europeans. Right? That is a little bit what you're thinking, talking about here. Is the US more concerned with China than we are? And, and kind of have it to spend limited resources. You said the defense budget stay the same, more or less. That, that, that the logical implication to follow uh, both, both Rolf and, and Francois on that is that over time there will be less here. So maybe you can reflect a little bit further on that, uh, Rachel, to begin with. Where, where uh, you know, when, when, uh, when the priorities come tough, it will be Asia. And, and then we're back to the kind of zero-sum question. What's, what's your reflection on this? Um, so I, I liked, um, I think it was, Rolf, you started your presentation by saying that, you know, the, the fabric of the transatlantic relationship is more robust than many think. And I, I truly believe that. Um, you know, you mentioned Congress. I, I think the majority of, of people in the U.S., not just in Congress, but in, in, in the general public were mortified when Trump suggested that the U.S. commitment to NATO wasn't steadfast and that we might withdraw. And that was another thing that has bipartisan agreement. So I think even in the U.S., despite our, our crazy politics and, and these unfortunate trends of sort of nationalism and is isolationism, which also exists in Europe, by the way, um, I'm not too worried about, about that fabric. I'd also argue that NATO is squarely in the U.S. interest. Look no further than the number of European countries who buy U.S. kit. I mean, our defense industrial base is is really much, you know, 
supported by the interoperability and, and European allies and partners buying U.S. systems and operating alongside us. So I think the U.S. gets a lot out of NATO for a very small price. Um, you know, everyone says we spend 3.8% of our GDP on defense, but a lot of that is going to global priorities. I think the investment um, that we put towards NATO common funding or, or supporting our forces in Europe is, is really marginal given the benefit we get out of that. When, to your question about hard choices, I think we need to remember also that NATO is a treaty alliance. You, you can see that the current administration talks about allies and partners, allies and partners. There is a reason for that distinction because there's a difference between allies, NATO allies, and then there are some treaty arrangements in the Asia Pacific with, with the Japanese um, and the Australians that, that also would fall into that ally category, but everyone else is a partner. So I, I do think there's, there's an obligation there, a legal obligation for the U.S. to be involved in Europe um, if, if things really get tough. So I don't see it as being an either-or choice, but it will be a level of effort question. How, where will the U.S. be if there is this dual conflict in the Asia-Pacific and Europe? What capabilities will they have in place to respond quickly versus to what extent will they have to rely on Europeans to be first responders? So if I were sitting on, you know, if I were a planner on this side of the Atlantic, those are the questions that I'd be asking U.S. counterparts is, you know, what do you expect me to do if in the worst case you are over in Asia and you have limited capabilities to, to bear? So I don't see it as zero sum, but rather Europe really does need to step up. Um, Francois, you didn't mention sort of, you mentioned Russia and you mentioned China, but not so much Europe's near abroad. I think that's, that's for me, that's an area where Europe really... You mean Turkey? I do not mean Turkey, and I actually okay, have, that's I I have a lot of, I actually have a lot of, we can, <laughs> hopefully we'll get to that, because I sort of disagree with the assessment on, on Turkey and, and the benefit of the mutual defense agreement vis-a-vis -vis NATO, but no, I'm actually talking about the Balkans, you know, uh, Ukraine, Georgia, those are Europe's responsibilities in the first instance, and those are areas where arguably EU capabilities whether military or otherwise, are actually well positioned. Uh, I think we've got a political will problem in that regard, <laughs> at, at both a NATO level and an EU level. Uh, but that is another thing where I think the U.S. really expects Europeans to step up. But but you also uh, brought up this term plur plurilateral, mm -hmm. which seems also to point a little bit different uh, direction. And okay, you keep the legal commitment to NATO and multilateralism. At the same time, there's a parallel process of coalition of the willings or what have you. So how do we square that? I think ideally the plurilateralism builds towards multilateralism, right? It creates that consensus among the subset of allies that have that comparative interest and then you, you, you sort of sell that to the broader group. But there is this imperative to prove to all of our publics that multilateralism is the better course than unilateralism. Sometimes I worry about that, that, you know, the Trump administration actually did get some results in terms of defen increasing defense spending with their, you know, strong-armed approach. So we have to, it's incumbent on all of us who believe in multilateralism to prove that it actually can produce better results. Yeah, Francois, um, 
you also talked about the continuation uh, since, since Georgia, basically. Uh, but it's a continuation of, let's say, a declining power. Um, and the bottom line is that Europe must do more, has to hedge, uh, you know, find a ways. Uh, and and uh, Rolf kind of followed suit on that and said that, like, um, man, that, that makes sense. We all to do that. And there's not really no interest in undermining NATO. Still, there is deep concerns. And there is concerns that there that this, <laughs> you know, within Europe, that, that some of the initiatives on Europe, uh, that Europe is taking these days, will undermine NATO eventually. There is concern in the United States about strategic autonomy, if that's a negative connotation or a positive connotation, as it were. So can you maybe elaborate a little bit on that, our, our hedging? How can, we, how can we hedge in a way that doesn't shoot ourselves in the foot at the same time? Yeah, when I, when I, when I came up with this wedging uh, analogy, some, uh, actually this was three years ago, uh, I, I added a companion analogy, which was when does a wedge become, uh, when does a hedge become a wedge? Uh, you want to avoid that happening, obviously. Uh, but I must say I was very impressed when I was listening to Rolf because at one stage, I, was, I felt like I was going to disagree violently when he said, well, you know, you must not question the U.S. guarantee because this is anti-Americanism. This is in substance what I understood you to say. And then later on, you said stuff which, I, I mean, even the most ultra-Gaullist Frenchman would not have dared say, like, well, maybe the Americans uh, sometime uh, after 2024 uh, we'll do a 1966 uh, U.S. version of the French withdrawal from the military structure, uh, or uh, they may go full bore for uh, bilaterals negotiated uh, on the basis of UCOM. Uh, uh, I actually agree that these are, these are real risks, and because they are real risks, uh, they explain the, the great sensitivity in those countries of Europe which take nuclear weapons seriously, there are not many of them who take it seriously. They, 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 they don't want to think too hard about these terrible weapons because they are terrible weapons. But the debate in Washington now about sole purpose, for example, in the framework of the Nuclear Posture Review, the nervousness about that is a sign exactly the sort of questioning uh, that, you, that you mentioned. I, I add, just to be quite clear on the, uh <coughs> uh, on the flavor of the discussion, I can put it that way, uh, I, I did not and do not want to use the decline word. Uh, I'm not sure the United States is a declining power. It may become a declining power, notably if you have uh, political change uh, which leads the U.S. away uh, from its democratic uh, constitutional choices. Uh, but for a moment, it's not a declining power. It's not, that's not true. It is a power which finds itself challenged to fulfill a number of roles in a world where you have a larger number of powers whose power has increased. It's the rise of China, not the decline of the U.S., I can put it that way. So one has to, has to, one has to be clear about that. Uh, 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 and until proven wrong, I, 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 I have to assume that the U.S. is not the declining power. Uh, uh, strategic autonomy. Strategic autonomy will be embraced with wild enthusiasm by every European country once the United States has indicated clearly that this is its preferred choice. It's, it's as simple as that. Uh, do the Americans object to what we did with Greece? Yes. Uh, uh, they do? Yes. They do? You mean uh, do we ob extending do we a mutual defense agreement? 
doing a mini lot with, uh, with Greece. I think it undermines Article 5 oh, and no, puts NATO in a difficult position. No, wait a second. I have not heard President Biden or the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of State use those words. I mean, those are analysts' words, and my words are analysts' words as well, and you can take them for what they're worth, and they may be the smartest words in the world, uh, but, US, but U.S. policy uh, for the time being does not seem to be particularly unhappy with the notion that America's defense investment in the Eastern Mediterranean is backed up by a greater French slash European commitment in that part of the world. I, fo I follow the Twitter account of your ambassador in Athens very closely, uh, Jeff Pyatt, uh, who, is, who, is a seriously, who is a serious person. And I, I, I didn't actually sense uh, any sort of unease at what we're doing. Now, we're about Turkey, by the way, because uh, it actually is a key problem. Turkey is a member of NATO, and Turkey should remain a member of NATO. On this we agree. It is in our interest to have them pissing from inside the tent towards the outside rather than having them outside pissing towards the inside, to use B President Johnson's uh, 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 analogy. Uh, it would be a catastrophe if Turkey left NATO. Yes. Yes, it would. Uh, but that does not resolve the issue of what happens when Turkey does stuff which is deeply inimical to our values, and our interests. Yeah. Let's, let's They're have not a little the debate only on one. that. They're Rachel. not no, the no, only no, one. No, wait a second. They, they, actually, <laughs> I mean, they actually wage war. Uh, I don't think there are very many NATO members who wage war or are on the verge of waging war uh, with other NATO members. It's, it's sort of unusual. I mean, uh, I, th I think you can admit that it's unusual. I, I think, okay. wa I now think now waging war with Greece is maybe a, is a strong suggestion. Yeah, I and when they, paint, when they paint NATO frigates on a NATO mission who happen not to be Greek, and they, and they are on a national mission of doing gun running towards Libya, uh, that is something which you consider as conduct which you would normally expect from a NATO member. Okay, Francois, now let Rachel <laughs> no, no, reply, this, this and then we will come so on I that mean, debate. You are making my case for strategic autonomy. Let's hear your, your response on that. Well, I mean, I don't want to make this a conversation about Turkey, but it is a conversation about how allies should deal with other problematic allies. And I don't think the, the answer is to be unsatisfied with the way NATO has dealt with Turkey and then provide bilateral mutual security guarantees, which if they played out in reality, would bring the alliance down. I mean, is France really saying that if Greece and Turkey got into a spat, it would take the side of Greece and would be able to handle that militarily alone? So, because I also want to push back on the idea that most Europeans support the idea of strategic autonomy. I actually see very little support for that among most European no, countries. I, I think, agree, I I think it's maybe, you know, Belgium, Luxembourg, and, and maybe Spain. But, you know, what I hear when I talk to Nordic counterparts and Central Europeans and, and Eastern Europeans, there's, there's a great deal of, of confusion on the first instance about what it actually means. Um, but, you know, I mean, I just think that if, if we're talking about how we deal with Turkey and, you know, some of the examples you mentioned, like Libya, I mean, I actually, I'm sorry to say, I actually think that, again, Turkey sort of 
the way they went about it might have been wrong, but they really changed the dynamic there with regard to Russian involvement in Libya. And there are a lot of U.S. policymakers that were actually grateful for Turkey's intervention in Libya and, to some extent, um, their actions in, in Ukraine to push back on, on Russia. So when we talk about hedging, they are hedging like crazy yeah. in their relationship yeah. with Russia and, and with NATO. And I think we... To, to steal your words, we don't want to create that wedge, and and I worry that something like the MDA with Greece does, um, does start to create that wedge. Okay, two words on strategic cost economy because, and now because before I do it so because in my interpretation is that we don't know what it is. That's why I'm concerned about it. Uh, if you know, and I think that's your point as well. The moment the United States agrees with it, <laughs> then we also the whole Eastern Europe will also kind of accept the term. Of first, of all, first of all, I actually agree with you, and, and not with what others said about strategic autonomy. That is, no, it's not a popular idea. Yeah. It's not a popular idea in most in most European countries, either because they are deathly afraid of losing American goodwill. That's central in Eastern Europe, which is why I say that the day when the Americans say strategic autonomy is a great idea, uh, they will fall in line without any problem. And then you have the others, most of the others, uh, who don't like the implications of strategic autonomy because strategic autonomy, uh, in order to have any sort of content, however you define it, it costs money and implies responsibility. You mentioned how difficult it would be to face Turkey uh, with, with the Greek thing. You're absolutely right. You don't, you don't do this on a shoestring budget, quite obviously. And here we have one little piece of good news, because yes, we haven't given a lot of good news today. <laughs> uh, uh, defense budgets continue in most of the important countries uh, to be on the upswing, despite COVID. You see it in Britain, you see it in France, mm -hmm. you see it in Germany. Uh, uh, come on. I you don't know. Britain only did 4.5%, France only did... Two point plus 2.5 percent, uh, and Germany, as a, uh, which starts from a very low base, as we all know, uh, it continues its determined effort uh, to increase uh, defense spending. So what many analysts had foreseen at the beginning of the pandemic, as for the time being, touch wood, actually not happened. That is, uh, that uh, the defense spending has continued to rise along the lines which we had seen after the 2014 2% uh, commitment, uh, the line which began before President Trump came into power and which continues after President Trump has left power. Okay, great. I, I would like to bring in Rolf and then uh, we'll also bring in questions from the audience. Uh, but Rolf, you're a historian. You've been listening to your colleagues uh, discussing you in intra-European affairs uh, and Turkey. Uh, so, and you were rather optimistic uh, when it comes to European resolve, actually. Um, What's your take on this? I mean, there is, <laughs> we are very good at infighting in Europe. Uh, how, how uh, and do you think then when, when, let's say, when the realities become more depressing or, or, or uncertain, that, that Europe will actually get its act together? I don't know. That's the, the <laughs> starting point. <laughs> Second is, of course, that um, the European Defence uh, Corporation is moving all the time. Low-key sometimes, but there are um, coming new pieces into the puzzle all the time. So um, how fast that will, uh, will, will, will move, it will depend on uh, the environment, the challenges, and of course, first of all, the future of the U.S. guarantee. Let me clarify 
the, the role of the U.S. I don't see any problems at all during the Biden administration. It's a love affair, basically. Yeah. Then I'm worried about 2024. Mm. Simply, what is going to happen? But my key concern and question is related to, to the long haul, the structural changes. And of course, the further we think into the future, the less we can say about it. But there is one term uh, that was uh, referred to here that is of interest, and that is first responder. And of course, that has always been with us in the sense that uh, this cooperation has relied on this uh, space and time dimension. So uh, much of the US forces will not be available in, on short notice. So we had this, um, let's say, the, the US uh, Navy, uh, the Brit British Navy in northern waters exceptionally, uh, very interesting in, in the short-term perspective. And that is the case uh, as of today. And there is a potential for the Europeans to enhance this role. I think about the, uh, the role of Europe. I think about Brit the British-led joint expeditionary force, very interesting from a Norwegian perspective. I think about the Nordic Defence Corporation, which is improving, very interesting. Just imagine uh, the quality and the force of the combined Nordic air power if they should should uh, enter into a battlefield. So basically this is about uh, pluralitarianism. It is about coalition of willing and able within the alliance. And we have always had that pattern, but it might be that it should be emphasize strongly in the future. Well, um, let me thank you so much for actually not just sitting here and agreeing, but actually having some real discussion. We, this, too often we don't have real discussions on these panels. I think I really appreciate that you, that you kind of, you know, found those areas that you could, could disagree a little bit on, because that makes it much more interesting. Uh, this topic, as Rolf indicated, it's not only about what happens to Russia, it's about what happens uh, between ourselves, within the West. It will be addressed again, for sure, from this stage and other places. So, so please um, stay tuned and, and thank you for coming this time and see you around uh, next time. So let's all give a big, big hand to the audience. Uh, speak.